It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hi, welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Johnny DC. And I'm his twin brother, Marvelous Joe. And I'm already out of breath due to COVID that I'm recovering from. Yeah, you got it again. What's going on? What happened? Again? This is only my second time. Exactly. That's why I said again. Okay. Did you not wash your poo-poo hands? What happened there? Why'd what you the get heck? <laughs> I don't think that's how you get COVID. I think someone sneezes in your face. I'm not surprised that happened to you. But uh, we'll <laughs> be sure to like let you take it easy for this episode. You don't want to yeah. do too much talking, which is fine because we're going to be reviewing a Marvel movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which came out this past week. It was a lot of fun. Maybe the best film in the Ant-Man franchise, but I think that comes down to personal opinion, considering the movie is fairly divisive by critics. But we'll get all into that later on this episode. Before that, we're going to break down the comic book movie news to come out this past week, including the news that The Marvels has had its release date delayed to November, and a photograph still of the upcoming Joker Folia Do movie. As always, we list our segment times in our episode description, so feel free to check out the show notes if you want to skip ahead to a particular topic. Don't forget, guys, to join us on Patreon, where we offer ad-free episodes of the show, access to our Discord chat community, where you can chat with us and fellow listeners. Check it out right now at patreon.com slash dynamicduel, which is linked in our show notes. Our lowest Dynamic 2.0 tier is only 2 bucks a month. And in our Fantastic $4 tier, you get all of that plus access to our monthly bonus episodes, including blooper reels and top 10 shows, as well as the visual data from our dual episodes at no extra cost. And finally, our X-Force tier, which is 10 bucks a month, gets you all that, and you get to become an executive producer of this show. Become a part of Dynamic Duel and help us determine our episode content, again, by visiting patreon.com slash dynamic duel and picking a tier that works for you. If you are interested in supporting the show but not able to join Patreon, then stop by our website, dynamicduel.com, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter, where we keep you informed on all things going on with the show. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. It means a lot to Jonathan and I. But with that out of the way, quick to the no prize. A no prize is... <clears throat> Damn it. You tried. Let me go for it. A no prize is an award Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award we post on Instagram and in our newsletter for the person that we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Bless your heart. <laughs> Last week, we asked, which Super Bowl trailer did you enjoy the most? The Flash or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and why? We got exactly four answers for this particular question. So everyone either gets an honorable mention or the no prize. Let's go ahead and break them down with the first honorable mention from Rick McGrew, who said, Hey guys, Rick from the Retronomapod. 
Um, I would say Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Emotionally, it's there. It's great. It looks fantastic. It's an end of a fantastic chapter in Marvel's history. But I have to go with The Flash just because we're getting three Batman. And who knows what other possibilities they have hidden under their sleeves of who might show up. Yeah, so the current rumor in The Flash is that Michael Keaton's scene at the very end that sets him up as the Bruce Wayne of the new established DC universe has been cut. And that's a cameo from another actor that has played Batman before will make an appearance. My guess is that that actor will be Christian Bale because he's the only one who's slept with Talia al Ghul on screen and can produce Damian Wayne as (laughs) a character. And maybe they'll just use that to set up the Batman and Robin film. That's just a hunch. But Talia died at the end of that film? Or did she? Or did she go to the Lazarus pit? No, she totally died and had the worst death scene ever. Well, I mean, we saw Batman die in that movie, too. Maybe he came back from a Lazarus pit. You never know. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, we did see him die, and we did see him later on in Paris. That's not a bad theory. But I'm excited for all the Batman in this Flash movie, because I love Batman. He's pretty awesome. Do you feel like this Flash movie is going to suffer from a case of multiverse madness? Like what happened with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, where everybody was speculating that everybody under the sun was going to appear in that movie and then were ultimately disappointed when they saw the movie? I don't think so. I don't think it's going to go that overboard. DC fans just tend to be a little bit more level-headed than Marvel fans. Okay. Yeah. I don't think it'll get out of control at all. Sure. Our next honorable mention goes to Miggy Matanguyen. Who said? Hey, what's up, guys? This is Miggy, and I enjoyed the Flash trailer way more than the Guardians. The Flash has always been one of my favorite characters, so I was really not looking forward to this movie because I didn't think they would stay very faithful to the character or the comics. But after watching this trailer, I see that they're going to be pretty faithful to the source material, so that just got me really excited. Uh, and it's going to be so much better than Guardians. So, And America agrees with me because it's the most watched trailer of the Super Bowl. That's that's very true. And I, I got to agree with Miggy here. I also was not looking forward to this film until I saw this trailer and saw how much of Flashpoint they were incorporating into it. Like with Kara being like subject one instead of like Superman. And Michael Caine's Batman definitely seems to be taking on the role of Thomas Wayne. It's, it's pretty exciting stuff. You can't trust what Miggy says here. Why? Because he said The Flash is his favorite character. Therefore, he's biased. He was going to like The Flash trailer, even if it was worse than Guardians. I can't trust him. America trusts him, evidently, because as you said, it was the most watched trailer of the Super Bowl. That's only like YouTube views, man. I bet you a lot more people were tuned in to the Guardians trailer as it was live during the Super Bowl. They only aired like 30 seconds of it. Same thing with The Flash. But even then, The Flash was more interesting. Dude, you should have even seen the reactions in the theater for Ant-Man when the Flash trailer came out. Everyone was excited and everyone was falling asleep for the Guardians trailer. You can't be trusted either. You know the same thing happened in your screening. Don't lie. No, no. Actually, honestly, I didn't even see the Flash trailer. What? Yeah. That's weird. You were probably too busy just stuffing your face. That's true. They do have delicious food there. Well, anyway, good answer, Miggy. (laughs) Moving on to our final honorable mention, Ben Ryan, who said, Hey there, this is Ben Ryan. Now for me, it was easily Flash, and here's why. Number one, I love Michael Keaton as Batman. Number two, Zod is back. I'm so excited about Zod coming back. Number three, I was dreading this movie. I was absolutely not looking forward to it, so this trailer made me fall in love with this movie, and I'm really excited to see it. So, by far my most looked forward to movie, other than the fact that Ezra's in it. Yeah, even though Ezra is probably, like, the thing I'm looking forward to the least, I do have to say they gave a pretty good performance in the trailer. But what I found most surprising, like Ben, was Zod's inclusion. Like, I didn't think they would be going all the way back to Man of Steel. That is awesome. That was super exciting to see. And I can't wait to see how that's going to work out. It appears like the Flashes messed up the timeline so that Kal-El didn't arrive on Earth, but Kara did, like earlier maybe, and she was kept away from the sun, preventing anyone from being able to stop Zod. And that's a really cool premise. Okay, yeah, sure. What? Moving on! Oh my gosh. Now, all three honorable mentions were for The Flash. I wonder what the no prize winning answer is going to be. Yeah, jeez, I wonder. The no prize winner is Brandon Estergaard, who said... The Flash trailer was the best. It was amazing, beautiful, and totally epic in scale. This trailer did one of the hardest, most impossible things, and that was bring back the hype for it. 
because of the main actor deciding to act up, the hype for this movie died down immediately and people just were okay with it not even being released. So the fact that this trailer completely changed those minds. Yeah. And look at that. It wasn't Guardians. Everybody loves the Flash trailer more. DC None wins. of them could be trusted. DC won None the of Super them. Bowl. <laughs> and talk about a 180 for a lot of Flash fans. You know, a lot of us weren't looking forward to this movie, especially after everything that Ezra Miller has done. Uh, like if DC would have just rebooted and they would have never released this film, like Brandon, I would have been totally fine with that. But now I can't wait to see this. It's my most anticipated DC film of the year when it used to be my least anticipated. What an incredible trailer. Yeah, it's interesting how much abnormal and illegal behavior DC fans are willing to forgive on behalf of the lead star just because of some poppy visuals. Damn, calling us out like that. (laughs) Dang. I mean, not all is forgiven. I mean, as long as they're getting help and, you know, justice is being served, you know, if they pay a fine or something like that, then in the end, you know, all will be well. Could be a bigger comeback than uh, Robert Downey Jr. Maybe. Yeah. People love a redemption story, you know? I think there were probably a lot more people who were excited for Guardians of the Galaxy 3 trailer more and just forgot to call in with their answer, you know? Oh, they're so passionate. They forgot. Yeah, they're so passionate. They were too busy thinking about Guardians to remember to record the answer. So (laughs) there you go. But congrats again to Brandon Estergaard for winning this week's No Prize. If you, the listener, want a shot at winning your own No Prize, stay tuned to later on this episode when we'll be asking another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news. All right, a few weeks ago when the Super Bowl was around, there were reports coming out that the Marvels was going to get some kind of preview during that event. And I was really disheartened when that never happened because now is about the time that you're going to start seeing advertisements and promotions for the summer movie season. And I thought releasing a trailer for the Marvels now would have been great to showcase in front of the Ant-Man Quantumania movie. But now we know why that never happened, because in the middle of last week, we learned that the film has been delayed from July 28th of this year to November 10th. Now, we don't know why this delay has happened. It could be because they need to do additional work on the visual effects. I mean, I assume that the Marvels will be a very visual effects heavy film, or it could be that test screenings have dictated that they need to do some reshoots uh, in order to change the story a little bit. It's hard to say. It could be either of those things. My guess would be special effects. I think VFX houses are still backed up because of COVID. At least I haven't heard otherwise. Yeah, I think there's been a noticeable dip in quality of special effects, you know, not just in Marvel, but like all major VFX heavy movies since COVID. And I think that's why I still think it's because of the VFX. They just need more time to work on them and get them polished. The effects of COVID just keep striking. Can't wait to be fully past that. Hopefully this is the last delay that we get due to the pandemic and, you know, the chain reaction that it caused. Did it replace anything? Was anything else supposed to come out in November? Disney moved up the Haunted Mansion, but I don't remember the Haunted Mansion's original release date. Coinciding with this announcement of a delay, Marvel released a new poster for the Marvels, which I gotta say looks pretty damn cool. It's essentially Monica Rambeau, aka Photon, Carol Danvers, aka Captain Marvel, and Kamala Khan, aka Miss Marvel, all featured prominently with their logos behind them within the Starfield, except for the case of Miss Marvel, who's standing on the ground with her shadow resembling the emblem that's on her costume. Yeah, it's pretty rare that Marvel characters have logos, but all three of these women do, which is kind of cool that they would use that on the poster. I think it's a fantastic poster. I love the colors. I love just like the idea behind it and the way they incorporated the logos. To me, it's like a top 10 superhero movie poster of all time. Really? That's pretty high praise. I think so. Yeah. I think it's a great way to spotlight these three women that are going to be in the film. Right, right. And it's so much better, I think, than the blown up faces that Marvel usually tends to do. Yeah, that's true. But uh, they have an updated tagline for this Captain Marvel sequel, which the original tagline was higher, further, faster. But now it's higher, further, faster together, which I thought was pretty nice. Yeah, that's great. I'm a little bit disappointed that we won't get another live action MCU film until basically the end of this year. In between that, we're going to have two Sony films. Oh, that's right. So there's another MCU films between Quantumania and the Marvels? Wow. Yeah, because Across the Spider-Verse comes out June 2nd and Craven the Hunter comes out October 6th. 
So hopefully, you know, Marvel can kind of fill that gap with Disney Plus content like Secret Invasion, which I'm also really looking forward to. And Loki 2. And Loki Season 2. Yeah, especially now. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to, and that's Joker Folia Do. Todd Phillips released on Valentine's Day on his Instagram our first look at the film. It's a photo of the Joker pinning Lady Gaga against a wall, and it looks incredible. Like, the cinematography of the first film was amazing. This shot also looks incredible, not only because of the performances, but just the lighting and the makeup and everything. We see Lady Gaga as Dr. Harleen Quinzel with just this look of a mixture of terror and excitement and confusion and like even adoration in her eyes. There's so much going on there and it's so interesting to see, especially juxtaposed against the Joker's very calm and tranquil expression. It looks like Joaquin Phoenix is going to kill it in the role again. Of course, he won an Oscar for the first time he played the character in, in the first Joker film. He's wearing makeup in this shot, his Joker makeup with like the blue triangles, the red nose. It looks like the red around his mouth is almost like blood and Lady Gaga's nose is bleeding. I'm not sure what's going on in this scene, but it looks really intense. It does. I was actually surprised about how much there was to read in just this one singular photo. I'm not surprised that Todd Phillips released it because it's worth studying. I've never seen anything that Lady Gaga has ever performed in any of her movies, including A Star is Born or The House of Gucci. But apparently she just is a phenomenal actress. She's really good. She's a caliber for sure. I mean, she's gotten an Oscar nomination, you know? I could totally see why they cast her. And I think the acting in the film is just going to blow us all away. Her take on the character is so vastly different from what we saw in the last iteration of our live action Harley Quinn played by Margot Robbie. The scenes between her and the Joker in the first Suicide Squad movie looks vastly different from what we're seeing here, which seems to dive much deeper into the psychosis of these two characters. Yeah, in the DCEU, they were in a huge rush to sort of separate Harley from the Joker. But uh, one of the most interesting stories for Harley Quinn is a mad love type story, you know, where she grows apart from the Joker because of his abuse. And I think that's what they're going to explore in this movie. And I can't wait to see that. I can't wait for other people to see that as well and learn what makes Harley Quinn such an interesting and fascinating character. But uh, I think that does it for the news for this portion. We do have a question of the week. It's not related to anything we've just talked about during this segment, but we thought it would be fun to ask. If you could be any character from either Marvel or DC, who would you be and why? Record your answer at dynamicduel.com by clicking on the red microphone button in the bottom right-hand corner, which will prompt you to leave us a voicemail. Your message could be up to 30 seconds long, and don't forget to leave your name in case we include you on the podcast. We'll pick our favorite answer and award that person a Dynamic Duel no prize that we'll post to Instagram and our email newsletter. Be sure to answer before February 25th. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. So let's go ahead and move on to the main event of this episode where we review the latest Marvel Studios film to hit theaters, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania was directed by Peyton Reed and stars Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, and Jonathan Majors. 
The film is the start of Marvel's Phase 5 and reintroduces the next primary villain for the MCU's heroes in Kang the Conqueror, a time-traveling villain from the comics. The character has a multiversal variant named He Who Remains that we first saw in the Loki television series from 2021, and he's poised to be quite the prominent threat for the multiverse going forward. While this film has been divisive among critics, it currently has a rating of 47% on Rotten Tomatoes as of this recording, the movie has done better with general audiences with an audience score of 84% and a solid global box office opening of around $225 million, which is the best opening for the franchise. But I gotta say, I'm so grateful that Dynamic Duel is now a Tomato Meter approved publication because I cannot wait to add my review to the mix and offset what I think is the needless cynicism I've seen toward this film, and recently to a larger extent, the superhero genre as a whole. Well, I mean, your rating is not really going to bump that tomato meter percentage in any direction, but it'll be nice just to have your opinion counted amongst that group. Right, because mine is an educated opinion, <laughs> unlike those other assholes. <laughs> right, yeah, because you read the comics. Right, right. I do have to agree that I think this movie is being reviewed overly harsh. It's much better than Thor Love and Thunder, which I thought was pure trash, basically. Yeah, that was horseshit. Yeah, and I don't think that Quantumania is Marvel's worst film, according to Rotten Tomatoes. You know, it's tied right now for the worst film with The Eternals. Those are the only two Ryan films that Marvel Studios have ever put out. Yeah, and it's like ridiculous. Like, this movie is not bad and deserving of a rotten score. You know, like in the same way Black Adam a few months ago wasn't deserving of a rotten score, I thought. Yeah. It just seems like more and more people are being more critical, saying these films are worse, when in reality, they're about as good as they've always been, especially compared to like Marvel's phase one and two films. You know, there were some mid-tier movies that came out then. It's superhero fatigue. I think it's finally setting in. Yeah. And like people may say that Quantumania is mid, but you know, constantly comparing each new film to the very best of films is ridiculous. You know, people need to stop viewing the quality of these films in terms of black and white and recognize that quality exists on a spectrum. Some things like this movie can be categorized as not as good, but still good. You know? Yeah, let's put that in the Rotten Tomatoes quote. There we go. <laughs> I'm going to say fuck the rest of these people in my blurb. <laughs> All that being said, our review of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is a spoiler review, as all dynamic dual reviews are, so if you don't want to ruin the movie for yourself, be sure to watch it before continuing to listen. So as you'd probably guess, I really liked this movie. I'd say that I liked it as much as the first Ant-Man movie, but for very different reasons. You know, these Ant-Man films have always existed in this wonderfully weird corner of the MCU, where instead of super soldiers and billionaire arms dealers, you get people riding atop ants, battling on toy train sets, and racing miniature cars like Hot Wheels. It's somewhat silly stuff. The main characteristics of the Ant-Man movies, though, is that they're fun and particularly inventive adventures with exciting ideas about how superhero action changes when the scale changes. The shift from our standard view to the shrunken down perspective can make the small scale stakes of the Ant-Man films feel relatively gargantuan. And while in actuality, these movies often haven't meant much to the larger MCU narrative, they've still felt larger than life. What this third film does, though, is take that wonderful weirdness and it dials it all the way up to 11 It takes those small stakes, like in the second movie, where basically it was just Janet's life that was on the line, and it ramps those stakes up to a multiversal level where entire timelines are in danger if the heroes lose. And suddenly, you have an Ant-Man movie that feels bigger than ever before. That doesn't necessarily mean better, but I do think it means more fun. Yeah, and it was pretty fun. I would say it was like on par with something like maybe Aquaman, if there's a DC equivalent in terms of fun. Yeah, Aquaman was the comparison that I also made because of the world building, you know, the visual inventiveness. Aquaman had a moment where there was an octopus playing the drums, you know, <laughs> and I felt like that exact same sort of thing would have been right at home in Quantumania. Totally, totally. One of the first notes I had while watching the movie was that it felt magical in the same way that watching Star Wars for the first time was, where everything seemed so unique and just weird and anything seemed possible because of that. I think that's pretty appropriate. But, you know, the inventiveness of Star Wars, I think, came about from, you know, the film's low budget. Here, mm -hmm. it's kind of just weirdness for weirdness sake. And it really makes me confused as to what even the quantum realm 
is. Like in one movie, it's just like this never ending kaleidoscope. And, you know, in another movie, it messes around with time so that like you feel like you're gone in an instant, but really it's been five years. We didn't get anything like that here. In another movie, you could time travel. Again, nothing like that here. It's just all very inconsistent. The confusion is understandable. So let me go ahead and see if I can explain things and clear some stuff up for you. Okay. So the quantum realm is essentially the basement to the multiverse, a dimension that can only be accessed at the subatomic level. Now, there are layers to it. There are sections of it, such as time vortexes that Janet referenced in the mid-credit scene to Ant-Man and the Wasp, Uh where time distortion takes place. But those distortions don't necessarily happen to the entire quantum realm. We first found that out when Janet came back from the quantum realm, aged the exact amount of time that she had been gone. Whereas Scott experienced a time distortion during his time there in Avengers Endgame because apparently he had gone too close to one of those time vortices. Now, to get to the quantum realm, you have to shrink down, but there are layers that you have to go through before you're actually within that basement of the multiverse. One of those layers is called the void. It's this dimension of blackness. Mm -hmm. And that's where Scott was able to escape from. And where was any of this explained? It wasn't. You know, you have to use deductive reasoning based on what you've seen. Okay. Some of this is headcanon, but because none of this is ever explained explicitly, you're forced to speculate. And that is one of the weaknesses of these films, for sure. I do think that setting a vast majority of the movie down there, though, was one of the best ideas for this franchise. I've seen a lot of critics shit on the amount of CGI in this film, but I'm like, fuck you, go watch Love Actually or some shit. You know, (laughs) the movie had a lot of visual effects, but it looked incredible. And it's like, you can't film this shit on location. Like, what are you complaining about? I wouldn't even want the quantum realm to look anything remotely to what you could find in the real world anyway. Yeah, that's true. It should look like something from a subatomic microscope. Yeah. Yeah, it's the quantum realm. In the comics, it's one of the most geographically and biologically diverse locations where every molecule is a galaxy and every atom is like a planet. Although in the comics, it's called the microverse. But you read those comics and they're like way fucking out there. Hmm. Like when the Hulk or Ant-Man visit Subatomica or something, or you read the adventures of the Micronauts on their homeworld and stuff like that. It's bizarre stuff. And I thought this movie captured that alienness perfectly. The Micronauts, were they in this movie? No, not specifically. I guess they could have like showed up in the background or something like that. It's hard to say because, again, everything is just so diverse that the way everything is represented needs no consistency. I do know that the character of Gentora, who is the female warrior, she is the niece of the Hulk's first love interest beyond Betty Ross. So the Hulk once was shrunk down into the microverse and he fell in love with this woman called Jarella, who is the queen of a planet called Kai. But it really doesn't matter because they're all such minor characters. It really doesn't matter. I'm like so underwhelmed right now. (laughs) The cousin to the love interest to the main character. (laughs) Yes, exactly. What's interesting is that I found Quantumania more fun than the previous Ant-Man films, despite the fact that the movie's tone was much more serious. I actually liked how, despite taking place in this fantastical setting, the threat posed by Kang the Conqueror to the Ant family was incredibly menacing and the danger felt more real. Like, the jokes were still there in this movie, which there should be with an Ant-Man film, but I think the tone overall was not as lighthearted as the previous movies, and this felt more appropriately balanced. Yeah, I kind of got the sense that we were going to get that from the trailers for this film, which were fantastic. The whole film delivered tonally, I think, I agree, in terms of the stakes and the threat posed by Kang. Yeah, he went a long way in correcting some of the more silly elements that were present here. Referencing one of the issues that you had with the film in regards to speculating on the quantum realm and stuff like that, the weakest aspect of the Ant-Man franchise is that the films rely too much on flimsy science for their plot points that hold up too much of the narrative that you just have to take at face value. Like in the last film, Ant-Man and the Wasp, they were like, oh, you were quantum entangled and we gotta extract Janet's quantum energy to fix Ghost's quantum instability. (laughs) And in this film, they're like, oh, you entered the probability storm because you were next to the multiversal power core. Yeah. You know, that sort of flux capacitor mumbo jumbo is ridiculous on its own. But when it's used to carry the film as much as it is here, you have a story that feels hollow at best and confusing at worst. 
and pointless at worst, I think, because yeah. like that whole probability storm thing, that was just to like show off a special effect. Like that was so unbelievably unnecessary to the story. Right. Considering how they were able to kind of like reabsorb their variants as they acquired the power core. No, I think they were insinuating that once hope came and they joined hands together, there was only one possibility of what was going to happen next. So that's how all of the other possibilities were absorbed. I could buy that. I mean, but again, it's all speculation because there's no explanation. There are some people who would probably balk at our struggle to suspend disbelief at a superhero film of all things, but much of the MCU is built on logical rules within its science fiction, or even magic, you know, in the case of Doctor Strange. But all that strangeness is rationalized via wizardry. Ant-Man and the Wasp are supposed to be science-based heroes, but their films have always felt like they were lacking in believable science, basically. Yeah, no, I agree. So yeah, that's always been an issue with the franchise, including in this film. But I think the best thing that Quantumania had going for it over the previous Ant-Man films was the villain. For as much hype as there was for Kang and the amount of pressure the franchise placed on itself debuting the next big bad on the big screen... I think Kang delivered exactly what was necessary in lead up to what's coming. But let's go ahead and break down Kang and the rest of the characters in our character breakdown. Now, Ant-Man, aka Scott Lang, was played by Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is always great as Scott Lang, and this film was no exception. He's always brought this great, comedic, everyman-type quality to being a hero. Yeah. But I really like how in Quantumania, he wasn't just this goofy guy played for comedic relief. In this film, we got to see him go through some serious emotional and physical conflict, unlike what he's faced before, such as when he pleads with Kang not to kill Cassie, or when he gets fucking curb stomped in the head at the end. You know, never before has Ant-Man been through this sort of turmoil, and that turmoil, I think, always contributes to more compelling superhero fare because of the greater adversity that the hero has to overcome. I really like the everyman aspect of Paul Rudd. He pulls it off somehow in a way that makes it feel like not boring. Like some of the lines he delivers in this film, just I'm thinking of like when he's big and storming through King City, he's like, a man's word is his bond. And it's like just <laughs> such a generic line. But because it's him saying it, it comes off as just hilarious. Yeah, definitely. I don't know what it is about him. He just has like a charisma about him that makes him unable to be just like too generic. Right. Yeah. To me, no one else can play Ant-Man. He pulls it off really well. And in regards to his character arc here, his primary drive is protecting Cassie, his daughter, who has always been this motivating force, whether it was trying to get money for child support in the first Ant-Man movie or avoiding getting caught by the FBI in the second movie. In Quantumania, Cassie is thrown into the adventure headfirst alongside him, and Scott struggles not only with keeping her safe, but coming to terms with her growth as a superhero and instructing her along the way. It kind of seems to serve as an analogy to fatherhood during that time when dads see their kids start growing into independent adults and the swelling of pride and yet also sadness that they've outgrown their need for you. I thought this film did a great job of portraying Scott's feelings. I really loved that relationship within this film. I think he enjoyed how much she was turning out like him, like even being in jail like a number of times, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's like, how many times have you been in jail? This is my fourth. <laughs> it was nice to see that despite the fact that Cassie may have resented her dad a little bit for not being there, the apple still didn't fall far from the tree. Right. Let's go ahead and move on to the Wasp a.k.a. Hope Van Dyne, who was played by Evangeline Lilly. The Wasp was, in fact, in this movie. <laughs> she was the Wasp. Uh, I was surprised, honestly, at the lack of development that she had here. It might be because Evangeline Lilly isn't that charismatic as an actress, but I was disappointed because I wanted to see more of her work within her new Pim Van Dyne Foundation, which seemed fascinating. Yeah, I feel uh, like a lot of the character development for her happened off screen before this movie even started. Yeah. I also wanted to see more of her relationship with Paul Rudd's character, which always felt underdeveloped throughout this franchise. Absolutely. You know, it was like nice to see them take a romantic break on the Golden Gate Bridge during that montage early in the film. And then they held each other at the end, you know, convinced that they were stuck in the quantum realm together. But really, those were part of only a handful of scenes that they had together in the film. Right. I was totally confused by their relationship in this film. I wasn't sure if, you know, they were married because Cassie was calling Hank Penn grandpa. I don't know hmm. what was going on. 
I do think that they should have spent more time establishing their romantic relationship to make the final sacrifice that Hope makes to be with Scott in the end that much more heartfelt. Yeah, I think it would have had a lot more meaning if they took the time to set that up better. Like she wasn't going to be able to live without him and we would have understood more why she made that choice. Yeah. And as a whole, you know, the Wasp is such an important character in the grander history of the Avengers. I just find myself always hoping for something more than what we've seen from her before. I did like how she was still a badass. You know, she didn't lose any of that. And I thought her costume did look pretty damn cool and a lot more comic accurate with the additional yellow elements that were incorporated here. Let's go ahead and move on to Kang the Conqueror, a.k.a. Nathaniel Richards, who was played by Jonathan Majors. In Loki season one, it seemed like Jonathan Majors was largely given free reign in terms of his performance. You know, he was kind of eccentric and kooky. Yet here in Quantumania, he was a badass motherfucker. And I love that. Shut your mouth. I'm just talking about Jonathan Majors. (laughs) Majors has the range to make each one of these Kang variants feel like a totally different and yet still intimidating character. You know, where he who remains was very showy. Kang the Conqueror was like a pressure cooker. You know, he was subdued, but with this burning anger within that would explode when the time came to kick all 31 flavors of ass. (laughs) Basket Robbins? I really liked this particular performance, so much so that I'm actually highly disappointed that this was perhaps the last we'd see of it. You know, I hope Marvel comes up with a way to bring this particular variant back since we now kind of have a history with this Kang. Yeah, I thought that was total bullshit at the end when they said that they killed him. Like, I wasn't sure it was confirmed until even the other Kings were like, oh, yeah, he's dead. I was like, fuck, that was a really good version. Why? Why is he dead? My hope is that, like, by going into the multiversal battery, that, like, he somehow becomes one with the multiversal energies or some bullshit and then becomes as powerful as the Beyonder. And therefore, he's the one that puts together Battleworld in the Secret Wars movie or something like that. I don't know. That'd be cool. Yeah. I I just don't want to see the last of this guy. Kang's motivation in the film was vengeance against the Council of Kangs for exiling him. But beyond that, he was a megalomaniacal despot who was the worst of whom He Who Remains described in Loki season one. Well, there was kind of shades of He Who Remains there and the fact that he was willing to do what was necessary to prune timelines because, you know, then they would produce a Kang capable of threatening him. Right. Yeah, that's what I got from that, too. Now, those of you who didn't see Loki season one, Kang is the scientist throughout the multiverse who discovers the existence of alternate dimensions. And upon this discovery, these Kang variants met with each other to share knowledge and study the multiversal time stream. But some among them wished not to study, but to conquer, resulting in this grand multiversal war. Now, he who remains in the Loki show was the one who weaponized a reality-devouring entity known as Eliath and was able to use it to eliminate all other timelines other than the quote-unquote sacred timeline, which is what we've known so far as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But if you've seen Loki Season 1, then you know the multiverse gets released beyond the sacred timeline in that show. And I think it'll be interesting to see which of these King variants that we're witnessing becomes the one that's left standing at the end of time. Yeah, if you didn't see Loki, it was really prerequisite viewing to understand Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, I feel like. My wife pretty much told me as much when we were walking out of the theater, and my daughters were like, what was going on? I have no idea. I didn't understand anything. I'm like, because you didn't watch Loki. (laughs) You got to get them to watch more Marvel stuff. The girls might like Sylvie. They might. It was a really good show. What did you think of Kang the Conqueror's appearance and power set in this movie? I think he was pure badass. It seemed like he was a huge threat that I think the Avengers would have a really hard time defeating. You know, uh, you have Thanos over here with an infinity gauntlet destroying half the universe. And yet you have this king who's destroyed entire universes. It's incredible. Yeah, he's definitely more accomplished than Thanos has been within the MCU. A lot of that was maybe telling and not showing. And that's just the nature of Kang being like an established villain. But I believe it. Yeah, I believe it. I I thought the best thing that Majors did was sell that intimidation. Kang in this movie didn't have access to all of his powers, like his minor time manipulation powers. But that was because for the most part, he didn't have access to his time machine that grants him some of those abilities. I mean, we've seen some of that already with like Thanos and the Time Stone, but it'll be exciting to see more. 
Because it's yeah. just so frustrating. Like, there's nothing you could do that he can't just undo. Yeah, if you guys haven't listened to our Professor Zoom versus King the Conqueror duel episode, not only can you get a backstory of King the Conqueror and all his different personas that he's developed along his lifespan, but I thought we did a decent job with the battle speculation between him and Professor Zoom. Let's go ahead and move on to Stinger, a.k.a. Cassie Lang, who is played by Catherine Newton. Now, I've seen Catherine Newton in a few things, like Paranormal Activity 4 and Detective Pikachu. I've always thought she was okay in those films, but I liked her as Cassie. I thought she was a good recast over Emma Furman from the Avengers Endgame movie because Catherine looks younger and she's supposed to be like around 16 years old, I think here. I thought Cassie was a great character in this movie. She was obviously independent due to her time spent surviving alone during the blip, but she was still somewhat naive when it came to superheroics. In the beginning, Cassie chastised Scott for seemingly being complacent and not doing enough as a hero. But in the course of this film, she really gets to see her dad in action and sees how heroic he is and how effective a fighter he is. And she rediscovers the same pride she felt for him when she was a small girl. And from her expressions, you really get the sense that when she's fighting alongside him, this is really everything Cassie has wanted since childhood when she and her dad would make believe pretend to go on adventures together. Yeah, she is very much a product of her father as a superhero, you know? She even said, I've never had a normal life. You know, when I was eight years old, a scary bumblebee man broke into my room and tried to kill me. Yeah, and that's faithful for the comics. The reason that she always wanted to be a hero was because she essentially grew up in the Avengers mansion every other weekend, and she really looked up to them. And you can learn more about Stinger in our Adam Smasher versus Stinger duel episode. Some of you may be confused why I'm calling her Stinger, because you know her as Stature, and that was her first superhero name in the Young Avengers comics. But she retired the stature name and became Stinger with like the purple outfit and everything like back in 2015. So she's gone under that moniker for quite some time now, even though like it seems like the vast majority of media still refer to her as stature, which confuses me. Let's go ahead and move on to Janet Van Dyne, who was played by Michelle Pfeiffer. I thought Michelle Pfeiffer was awesome here. You know, it's been over 30 years since Batman Returns and she can still believably kick ass. She still looks stunning. And despite the ridiculousness of some of her lines, she delivered them believably and with confidence. And I think she solidified herself as like the queen of the nerds for both Marvel and DC movie fans. She's always been a fantastic actress. She's incredible. I do wish she did duck face a little bit less or duck lips um, because that was like full force throughout this whole movie. But other than that, I have no qualms. She was perfect. I don't think it was duck face so much as lip injections, which, uh, yeah, people should never do lip injections. It's just it's just horrible looking. But yeah, I thought she was great. I've seen quite a few people ask what happened to her quantum powers from the first movie. And I honestly have no answer. Uh, That's true. The only thing I can assume is that the quantum energy within her dissipated the longer she was outside of the quantum realm, or perhaps she lost them after being blipped. I think both are reasonable answers, but again, because Quantumania fails to address this, all we could do is speculate, which is not great. Let's go to move on to Hank Pym, who's played by Michael Douglas. Now, I respect Michael Douglas as an actor, and to this day, I'm still surprised he's doing films within the MCU. Like, sometimes I feel, like, protective of him. Like, when I watch him, I just hope the material suits his stature and talent. But at the end of the day, it's like, eh, I'm sure the paycheck suits him. You know, and that's not to say that Michael Douglas is bad in the role or that Hank Pym isn't an interesting character in his own right, because he is. You know, I'm sure a lot of actors in Michael Douglas's generation wish they had this role of this aging badass genius. But in Quantumania, you know, Hank Pym's more along for the ride. It's more Janet's show. You know, she takes the lead more due to her experience in the quantum realm. And it was cool to see his reaction as a scientist. And I particularly love how he showed up with the cavalry at the end after amassing his evolved ant army. Was that kind of deus ex machina? No, because it was established. But it It just came at like the most convenient time, like right when they were about to lose. That's what the cavalry does in these movies. Have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? That's fair. Yeah. I do kind of wish that we would have seen Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne suit up at least once in this movie because, you know, they established that it's pretty easy for them to get these suits on. That's true. I did like how the suits kind of seem to grow and shrink onto their bodies now. I thought that was kind of a cool concept. But with just as much ass as Janet was kicking and how cool, you know, Hank Pym was in this movie, it would have been nice to see them suit up like one final time. 
I don't disagree with that. That would have been cool to see as an homage to the original Ant-Man in the comics. But what I really love about Hank Pym the most in these movies is that the films never took the character down the same shitty path the comic books did, where he turned out to be this almost irredeemable, unstable asshole. Wife beater. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and move on to something I did not want to talk about. We have yet to bring up and I wish we would never have to bring up. But that is the character of Modoc, <laughs> a.k.a. Darren Cross, who is played by Corey Stoll. What the fuck? Right? What the hell were they thinking? I don't know. I mean, like, Corey Stoll was good as Yellow Jacket in the first movie. And I don't necessarily mind the concept of him as Modoc in the quantum realm. But the filmmakers just totally botched the execution of this character. You know, it was so bad in multiple ways. First and foremost, the special effects. Like, that was embarrassingly bad. I get that Modoc is supposed to look grotesque, but it's also like they got the actual effect wrong. You know, like instead of creating a working 3D model of the character's face based on Corey Stoll's performance, they just stretched his face over the model. So he looked warped and distorted and just cringeworthy. And it was by far the worst visual effect ever to come out of Marvel Studios, and I can't imagine they were happy with it. It was so uncanny valley. And you're right. He's supposed to look grotesque, but he's also supposed to look real. And I didn't buy for a second that he was. Exactly. Like, they should have just left the mask on the character, because that actually did look kind of cool. Yeah, with the mask, the character looked awesome. With, like, the purple laser buzzsaws and, and, like, all the missiles and stuff like that. Yeah, the weapons were pretty cool. But even in regards to that, like, he didn't use any of his mental abilities. You know, this was just a minor showing compared to the comics. He was pretty much just a joke throughout the whole movie. In a way that I didn't really think Darren Cross was in the first Ant-Man movie. So this comedic turn left me really confused. Well, he was a joke because of his appearance. You know, people were like, what the hell happened to you? Well, no, even more than his appearance. Because like at the end, when he died, he was like, you know, at least I died in Avenger. And Scott, you were always like a brother to me. I was just like, what? (laughs) Why are they making him so goofy? I thought that was hilarious, though. It was funny, but also it came out of nowhere. The quantum realm kind of messed with his mind or something, it seemed. Apparently. Never wanted to see Modoc's ass either, by the way. That was weird. His origin was strange to me because in the comics, he was a scientist for advanced idea mechanics who had his brain abnormally expanded in order to comprehend their work on the cosmic cube. But in this movie, it looked like only his head survived the first movie and then somehow Kang was able to grow a facsimile of his body from his head? No, that's not what happened happened at all. So when he was shrunk into the subatomic realm in the first movie, his body parts didn't shrink at proportionate rates. So his torso shrunk much more than his head. And same thing with his arms and legs. His head basically shrunk the least, which is why when he landed in the quantum realm, you could see that his yellow jacket head was so much larger than his limbs. Oh, I see. I I guess that makes sense. I don't mind that rationalization for why he has a big head. I didn't get Modoc's turn about don't be a dick. Again, no, it was just that, played for laughs. Modoc to me should be so much more evil. Yeah, he's supposed to be. The fact that Cassie was able to convince Modoc to not be a dick by saying, don't be a dick. And then he was like, I'm not a dick. And that was what caused Kang's armor to be destroyed. It was too big a plot point to be played as just a gag. Absolutely. I thought there was some Trevor Slattery type shit right there. Almost. Almost. But I think that does it for all the characters, so let's go ahead and get into our story highlights. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. 
In a flashback to when Janet Van Dyne was still stuck in the quantum realm, she comes across Kang the Conqueror, who crash lands near her after being exiled by the Council of Kings, where he would no longer be a threat due to the realm's existence outside of time and space. I thought that was a pretty cool opening. It was interesting to see Janet's lifestyle being marooned in the quantum realm, where she was almost like running this farm type thing. I thought that was pretty cool. The backdrops were just spellbinding. Yeah, that one in particular, I thought it was a pretty solid opening, this entire scene. In the present, Scott Lang enjoys fame as a superhero and author, while Hope Van Dyne enjoys success running the Pim Van Dyne Foundation, which uses Pim particles to help solve issues around the world. Scott's daughter Cassie becomes an activist and gets arrested, and Scott bails her out. I'm kind of curious to read that book that's featured in this movie, which is like an actual book written by quote-unquote Scott Lang. Yeah, you can get it on Amazon, which is kind of meta. It's kind of cool. During a family discussion, Cassie claims her father isn't doing enough as a hero anymore, and she reveals that she and Hank have been working on a device to navigate and communicate with the quantum realm. Alarmed by this, Janet shuts off the device, but it's too late as she, Hank, Scott, Cassie, and a colony of smart ants are sucked into a portal into the quantum realm. I don't know how this happened. Like, how did they get sucked in? Well, didn't Modok say he had something to do with it? Yeah, we know that it was Modok that had discovered Cassie's signal, but like, did Modok develop some kind of means to remotely shrink things without pin particles? Like, if he could generate a portal from the quantum realm, couldn't he theoretically use that as a means to escape? That's a great question. I figured if anyone was able to do that, it was going to be him, considering the fact that he has a history with pin particles and shrinking things. But they definitely should have made that explicit and explained how he was able to do that. And maybe they could have like used that to figure out how to get back home. Yeah, exactly. Plot hole. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. In the quantum realm, Scott and Cassie are discovered by a group of freedom fighters that are rebelling against the rule of Kang, who conquered the realm. One of my favorite parts in this movie, actually, that really sold me on the whole fantasticalness of the quantum realm was when Scott and Cassie see the sun start flying toward them. And then all of a sudden it grows tentacles and starts attacking them. And then it turns out to be the energy nucleus of this larger amoeba type being. It was all so strange, but it was amazing. I loved every minute of it. Nothing was as it seemed. For me, that happened when like they were looking at the buildings that were alive. They're like, your buildings are alive? And the little jellyfish guy was like, yours are dead? <laughs> yeah. It's such a Rick and Morty moment. And actually, one of the writers of this film was a Rick and Morty writer. Yeah. That jellyfish guy was voiced by Dave Desmalchin. What, really? Yeah. No way. Well, they couldn't find another role for Michael Pena or what? I guess not. I don't know. Maybe there were scheduling issues there or something, but I do think that Luis was missed in this movie for sure. Yeah. I did like that ooze guy though and how they like drink his blood to understand their language and how he was like obsessed with holes and stuff like that. Was that was kind of weird. <laughs> Meanwhile, Janet uses her knowledge of the quantum realm to get Hope and Hank safely to a cantina where they meet with an old associate of Janet's named Krylar in an effort to find out where Scott and Cassie are. Krylar reveals he now works for Kang and that they already know where Scott and Cassie are. That was the most useless Bill Murray cameo yeah. I've ever seen. Absolutely. He was wasted in this role. I thought during the trailers and when they announced that Bill Murray was going to be in this movie, I expected like a Grandmaster Jeff Goldblum type appearance, but this was nothing. It wasn't even funny. No, it was not funny at all. Is Kylar from the comics, damn it? Yeah. Is he significant? No, not really. This is dumb. I hated it. <laughs> I have to wonder if maybe his role was reduced due to the controversy that's come out around Bill Murray, where it was revealed he was like pressuring Gina Davis to let him give her a massage and like the headbutting thing and all this dickish behavior. What? I have not heard any of this. Really? Has Bill Murray been canceled? Kind of. He's always had this reputation for being hard to work with, but I think people are like really coming out with their stories now. Wow. Well, yeah, maybe his role was cut. That's the only thing I could think of because it was kind of a thankless cameo. King's forces invade the rebel camp where Scott and Cassie are, causing them to fight and help defend the freedom fighters. However, Modok shows up and captures the two, imprisoning them. They learn that Modok is actually Scott's former enemy, Yellow Jacket, who was sent to the quantum realm by Scott years earlier. Meanwhile, Hope, Janet, and Hank fight Krylar and his men and steal a ship flying to safety. I love the weirdness of the quantum realm and how Hank is disgusted at how he's supposed to fly the ship by like sticking his hands into these like tentacle things. Yeah, it was really funny. 
Kang meets with Scott and requests he retrieve the multiversal power core that once powered his timeship. Though Scott initially declines, Kang threatens Cassie's life and forces him to accept. They make a deal where Kang will exchange Cassie for the power core. And I still don't understand why Kang like just didn't follow through on their deal. Yeah, I don't get that either. He had no reason not to, considering that once he got his core, he was going to take himself and his army out of the quantum realm and get his revenge. Like, he didn't need to renege on his deal, considering that they were going to be trapped down there, regardless. Exactly. Meanwhile, Janet reveals to Hope and Hank her history with Kang, which is after his exile, Janet helped him repair his timeship, where she learned through his neurokinetic interface who Kang was, the timelines he's destroyed, and the countless lives he's ended. She destroyed the multiversal power core by enlarging it using a growth disk, stranding Kang in the quantum realm. She shortly after escaped the realm when she was rescued by Hope and Hank from the second movie, and Kang went on to conquer the quantum realm. This scene brought up an interesting question that may be a plot hole, and that is, if Janet had growing discs, why couldn't she use them in her regulator like Scott did in the first movie to escape the quantum realm? That said, both Ant-Man and the Wasp also had growth discs, and they could have used them in the same manner to escape the quantum realm in this movie. Fucking Marvel. The only thing I can think of, and again, this is one of those issues where you have to speculate because they don't explain, the only reason Scott was able to come back in the first movie was because he was still in the void and had not yet crossed into the quantum realm. That's the only thing I could think of. Or maybe he had updated tech that she didn't have. I, I don't know. It's possible. But I thought the flashback scenes between Janet and Kang were really well done. I did reach a point where I was kind of tired about everyone talking about Kang, but like trying to keep it a secret who he was still. I'm like, it's fucking Kang. Like you could just say his name. Yeah, they didn't want to say his name, but it wasn't like a forbidden thing like Voldemort or something like that. Right. He just didn't want to. It was weird. Yeah. Kang backs out of his deal with Scott and refuses to give Cassie back and captures Janet as Modok destroys Hank's stolen ship. Hank is rescued, however, by the colony of large smart ants that were also sucked into the quantum realm and went through a period of rapid evolution, making them hyper-intelligent. Cassie escapes captivity and helps free the imprisoned freedom fighters. I actually really liked the smart ants. I thought they were funny. They're uglier than I thought they would be at uh, extreme macro detail. It's so much more different and so much more horrifying than like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or the first Ant-Man movie. Yeah. As Kang prepares his army to depart the Quantum Realm and get revenge on the Council of Kings for exiling him, Cassie and the Freedom Fighters stage a revolt. Giant Man and the Wasp arrive and stop Kang from departing, forcing him to come down and lay the ever-loving smackdown on everyone. Hank arrives with a cavalry of large smart ants that overwhelm the battlefield and Kang, who has to protect himself with a force field. Now, was it technically Giant Man because he was still, you know, pretty small? I kind of justified that as the reason why he, like, didn't pass out after so much time being in that form it was relatively giant man because even though he was comparatively giant he was still subatomic you know right so it didn't make sense to me when they were like oh yeah i want citrus you know lime mm. <laughs> i think the relative scale was getting to him okay cassie defeats modok by growing large as stinger and convinces him to not be a dick Persuaded, Modok turns on Kang and sacrifices himself to destroy Kang's armor, rendering him powerless. Again, unconvincing. I did like the gag, though, where Cassie grows large and then punches Modok in the face. That slow motion effect I thought was pretty funny. And horribly rendered. Janet uses the multiversal power core to create a portal to escape the quantum realm and go back home. However, Scott stays behind to stop Kang from also escaping via the portal. Kang curb stomps the shit out of Scott, but Hope comes back through the portal in order to help in the fight. Together, Ant-Man and the Wasp break the power core and knock Kang into it, where he's pulled in and defeated. I liked that fight. I actually really liked the action in this movie when it came to Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. You know, we saw a little bit of that in their fight against Ghost in the last movie, but here, when they were going up against Kang, I thought they worked really well together. It made sense that Scott would get, you know, the shit kicked out of him. But I hope she's always been like a better fighter and more formidable. So back on Earth, Cassie uses her quantum realm navigation device to find Ant-Man and the Wasp. And she opens a tunnel to bring them back home. But how did she do that without the power core? Well, they don't need a power core to access the quantum realm. But no, she opened a portal that was just like the power core portal. 
I couldn't tell you why it looked similar. I don't know what the quantum tunnel looks like on the other end. It's possible they all look like that. But we know that Hank Pym has technology to access the quantum realm. We saw that in Ant-Man and the Wasp, and we know they were working on a navigation device. So for me, it made sense. Okay. Back on Earth, Scott begins to worry about whether Kang was truly defeated and what's going to come. And that's the end of the movie. And for some reason, Hope has blonde hair now. Like right away when she comes back from the quantum realm, she's like, gotta dye my hair. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little bit strange. But in reality, it's because they filmed that birthday scene like literally weeks ago. Really? Yeah, they decided to change it. I think the original ending was that they were trapped in the quantum realm. And then the movie ends with Cassie working on bringing them back. But then they decided to go with this new ending. They pussied out. Yeah, I think it would have been neat to see them trapped in the quantum realm just to end with like the stakes actually being quite substantial. Yeah, you could easily bring them back in a subsequent film. I would have preferred that ending so much more than what we got. Not that it was a bad ending. I actually really liked the ant cake bit. But uh, (laughs) I think it would have been more poetic to have Ant-Man and the Wasp trapped in the quantum realm. In the mid-credits scene, variants of King the Conqueror resembling Immortus, Ramatut, and some vague Scarlet Centurion Iron Lad hybrid announce the summoning of every King variant to the Council of Kings at the edge of time where they will begin their multiversal uprising. And that's got to be an actor's dream to be able to play that many roles with one character. Yeah, and again, Jonathan Majors crushed it, like making each one of those characters feel very different from each other. Exactly, yeah. In the end credit scene, Loki and Mobius and Mobius encounter a variant of Kang in the 1920s named Victor Timely, who was apparently built a time machine. And that felt like a scene that was stripped straight from the show. It is. So we're going to see that again in the actual series. It's not like they filmed that as an end credit scene for the movie. Correct. Because the cinematography was all different. It was very much reminiscent of the type of shots that we saw in Loki. Now, I didn't get too much into Victor Timely within my Kank backstory in our dual episode against Professor Zoom. But Victor Timely is another one of Kang the Conqueror's personas that he adopted. I kind of skipped over him because he didn't really do too much as like a villain, but he was highly influential on the great inventors of the modern Marvel Universe, including Iron Man, Mr. Fantastic. And Victor Timely was even the one who hired and mentored Phineas Horton, the creator of the original Human Torch android. Oh, no way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, it goes all the way back to Marvel Comics number one. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the character is used in the Loki television show. Can't wait for season two. All in all, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania was highly enjoyable to me, even though it does have its fair share of issues that were largely inherent within the Ant-Man franchise to begin with. I just think that those issues are magnified just like the stakes in this movie were. But overall, you know, this is one of Marvel's most visually inventive films with fun and fantastical world building and the franchise's most imposing villain yet in Kang the Conqueror. I'm going to give this film three and a half stars, a fresh rating. Yeah, I think that's a fair rating. We've given other films like Aquaman and Wonder Woman four stars. I think this is just right below that. It's a lot of fun, and I think it was very interesting. I really liked King the Conqueror, but I also disliked MODOK and some of the plot holes that they had in the movie that I don't think would put it at the four-star level. So three and a half stars makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, like, despite the fact that I enjoyed it just as much as the first Ant-Man movie, which we gave four stars, I think with Quantumania's greater ambition came greater potential for missteps. So that's kind of what happened here. But yeah, I still enjoyed it. And I still definitely recommend seeing it. You know, if you've seen the other Ant-Man movies and Loki, especially, I think it's a very interesting setup for the rest of the multiverse saga that Marvel is going through now. Yeah, it did its job well. But that does it for this review. Let us know what you thought about Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania by writing to us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com or by visiting us on Instagram or Twitter. You can find links to all of our accounts by checking out our show notes or visiting our website dynamicduel.com. And on our site, you could also find a link to our Patreon page where you can join our Dynamic 2.0 tier and chat with us and fellow listeners, our Fantastic 4 tier, which gets you bonus content each month, or our X-Force tier that makes you an executive producer of this podcast. If you can't join Patreon, you could still support the show by signing up for our e-newsletter, also at dynamicduel.com. Our next episode is going to be another review. We're going to discuss the Legion of Superheroes animated DC film that just came out. 
Yeah, between seeing Kara in the Flash trailer and the announcement from James Gunn that we'll be getting a Supergirl movie down the line, I'm actually really looking forward to seeing this animated film, which stars Supergirl. But that does it for this episode. We want to give a big thanks to our executive producers, Ken Johnson, John Starosky, Zachary Hepburn, Dustin Balcom, Mickey Matanguian, Brandon Estergaard, Nathaniel Wagner, Levi Yaton, Nick Abonto, Austin Wisolowski, AJ Dunkerley, Scott Camacho, and Gil Camacho for helping make this podcast possible. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away. True believers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.